Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special, I think I will call it a bonus episode of the Waking Up to Narcissism premium question and answer edition that I want to run on the regular Waking Up to Narcissism feed. Because if you like what you hear here, then I would love for you to support the podcast and the the work being done behind the scenes of trying to bring more awareness to emotional immaturity and the narcissism that people are waking up to in their relationships and even in themselves. If you have an extra $5 or $4.99 laying around in the couch cushions and you're willing to part with that, then I would love if you would consider subscribing to the Waking Up to Narcissism Premium Podcast. So this episode starts with a letter and the letter is titled, Your Podcast is Like a Mirror to My Life. So they say, hi, Tony. First off, I hope this email finds you well. I've been on a marathon session with Waking Up to Narcissism and I genuinely feel like somebody's flipped on a light in a room I didn't realize was dark. Listening to your episodes, I feel heard and validated. It's uncanny, but it almost seems like you've got a camera trained on my life 24-7. The stories you share, the nuances you delve into, it's as if they've been plucked right from my everyday experience. But here's something that's been nagging at me. Do you have an episode that sort of encapsulates the, quote, basics of narcissism? I know I picked up bits and pieces from various episodes, but a centralized summary would be immensely helpful, especially now that I'm beginning to wake up to certain patterns of narcissism or emotional immaturity in my relationships and even perhaps in myself, to which I can't help but I want to make a little bit of a joke of, doesn't that seem a little bit narcissistic of saying, hey, uh, hey, old man, can you put together an episode that has all the things that I would like to hear, even though I'm not really quite sure what those are, but I get to it, but I'm kidding. He goes on to say a particular term that kept popping up in conversations and online readings was gaslighting. I'd always heard it, but never truly grasped its weight until you dissected it in multiple episodes. The clarity you brought to this term has been enlightening and unsettling. Here's why. For the longest time, I've been that guy who tries to keep the peace in my marriage. I thought I was being the bigger person, preventing conflicts, but this peacekeeping had a price. My sense of self. My wife continually framed our issues in such a way that made me feel like I was always the problem, the perpetual antagonist. It was a dizzying maze of self-doubt, but as I delved deeper into understanding narcissism and emotional immaturity through your podcast, the pieces began to fall into place. My wife, as much as I hate to admit it, and I do love her, and I know she means well, and there are good intentions there, thank you for pillars, appears to be a master gaslighter, and everything made more sense when I considered her upbringing. Her parents could probably walk through a storm and swear it was a sunny day. The thought of them admitting a mistake, even if there were a million dollars on the line, unthinkable. I know this email is long, but I wanted to convey just how monumental your podcast has been for me. Please keep doing what you're doing. There are many of us out there sifting through the haze and your guidance is invaluable. Warm regards and then the person's name. So I am truly grateful for that email. And I realized that there is a part of me that really does want to just point to a particular episode and say, hey, here's some basics. Here's some fundamentals. So I thought, why not? I thought I would give a little bit of background on the difference between narcissistic personality disorder and emotional immaturity. 
because for anybody that is new or is trying to catch up to some of the backlog or the back catalog, then I really do like to take a look at that uh, difference between narcissistic personality disorder and emotional immaturity. And I know that the word narcissism is used a lot in society. As a matter of fact, it's right there in the name of the podcast. So I know I contribute to that. But the actual personality disorder could actually only be diagnosed in a small percentage of the population. But I will make the argument all day that we are essentially all emotionally immature until we go through experiences and and start to learn the right tools and and become more self-aware and are willing to self-confront and grow. And when you are in a relationship with an incredibly emotionally immature or narcissistic individual, then there is just a perpetual moving target of emotions and of reality, and that can make your own awakening very, very difficult. I wanted to start with a little bit of the statistical data on narcissistic personality disorder and the prevalence of narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD. So based on the DSM-5 criteria, which the DSM-5 is the diagnostic manual that, that mental health professionals often use, the prevalence of NPD in the general U.S. population is estimated at anywhere from around 0.5% to 6.2%. So that's still a, a pretty small number when it comes to the general population. But if you take 6% of the population, though, that still is a lot of people. So why do we hear about it so often? And it's also important to note that prevalence rates can vary depending on the study and the sample and the diagnostic criteria used. So that's why there's that swing from 0.5% to 6%. But I think sometimes people feel like, oh, it's... Is uh, half the population or half the population nar- narcissistic? And it does tend to be or seem to be more prevalent in men than women. And that is one of the questions that I get so often is that where does that study come from? And there's a, I'll put the link in the show notes, but there's a study out of, I believe it's the University of Buffalo that is a, a very long-term and very large study that showed a high prevalence in more men than women. And we dive into that in some of the episodes, some of the back catalog of episodes where a lot of times when we add components in there, like things like ADHD or the male compartmentalization of the brain or impulsivity and the fix-it mentality, And a lot of those things can show up as more narcissistic or emotionally immature. But uh, diagnostic criteria, this is again, according to the DSM-5. So to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, an individual must meet five or more of the following criteria. So let me go ahead and prime the joke that if you only have four or four and a half of these, you're good. And if you have five, well, you're right on the border. And then if you have more than that, then there's your narcissism. So the first one has a grandiose sense of self-importance. The second one is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. The third one believes that they are special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. The next one is requires excessive admiration. After that, we have has a sense of entitlement. The next one is interpersonally exploitive. The next one lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. After that, we've got is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of them. And uh, finally, we have shows arrogant or haughty behaviors or attitudes. And this is actually more difficult than I thought because I want to jump in and, and then start breaking down what each one of those then looks like on this almost sliding scale of emotional immaturity. Because some of the concepts like the requires excessive admiration can be that if the person, if they really never received a lot of that praise or validation in their childhood, then they only feel like they exist if they are getting the attention. 
And while they would prefer it to be the positive attention, they can often go into a victim status so that then they are still able to say that you don't care about me. And, and so that admiration can move from admiration over into just, do I exist? And so I need to be engaged with at all times that the narcissist or the emotionally immature person can't just sit and, and just be. And that can be a really difficult thing. The part that believes that they're special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions is it's really difficult for an emotionally immature or narcissistic person to just be and exist. What if you're just doing your best and, and you aren't the world's greatest fill in the blank? Well, that's okay. And this is where even concepts like confabulation come into play, where as you go back and revisit stories, here's the Uncle Rico moment from Napoleon Dynamite, that you are convinced that you really could throw that football over that mountain back when you were in high school. And I know that as I was waking up to my own emotional immaturity, boy, my, my high school story sure did, sure did lessen as I started to realize that, you know, that's really not how those things happened. I did attend high school. I did play sports, but apparently I did not win every award. I really didn't go into that kind of detail, but I think you see where I'm going with that. And I'll take a quick tangent or side note here to quote one of my favorite articles from Psychology Today from Eleanor Greenberg, and it's called The Truth About Narcissistic Personality Disorder. And she starts the article off by saying every once in a while, a new diagnostic label emerges into mass consciousness and people start to use it and misuse it as a synonym for bad behavior. And she said this year's label, and this was back in 2017, seems to be narcissist. And she said, I thought I might be useful to clarify what mental health professionals mean when they talk about it. And, and I love this opening paragraph. Narcissistic personality disorder is the name for a series of coping strategies that began as an adaptation to a childhood family situation that left the person with unstable self-esteem, the inability to regulate their self-esteem without external validation, and low empathy. And then she said that what goes along with the major categories of personality disorders, borderline, narcissistic, and schizoid, that people with these traits also lack whole object relations and object constancy. And those things are so important. So I kind of look at it like whole object relations could basically be described as seeing the whole picture. So when it comes to people, it's about realizing that every person, including ourselves, is this mix of strengths and flaws. And I have a hard time even calling it good and bad qualities because that alone is making a judgment about somebody else when they are, quite frankly, just doing them. So maybe it's more like saying or realizing that every person, again, including ourselves, is this mixed bag of things, of thoughts, of feelings, of emotions, expressions. And you may really like some of those things about another person and you may not understand or even find them challenging. Or actually, you might not be able to stand some of the traits of somebody else. Nobody's perfect, but no one is all bad either. So we all have our good days, we have our bad days, we have our victories, we have our mistakes. So that's whole object relations. And then object constancy, on the other hand, could be described as keeping an emotional connection. And it's all about holding on to your positive feelings for somebody, even when they've done something that you find upsetting. Because when you're dealing with emotional immaturity or narcissism, when someone does something that uh, is upsetting to, to the emotionally immature, now all of a sudden they become all bad. You have done me a, a wrong and now everything about you is dismissed. And then until you do something that makes them feel better and now they're back to thinking that you're awesome. And that's where I introduced this concept of, hey, do you want to ride bikes? So if the, let's say the husband in this situation is more emotionally immature, or narcissistic, that he can literally curse out his spouse, which is mind-blowing. And then he gets that off of his chest. He feels he's gotten rid of his discomfort, and he feels better. So a couple of minutes later, then he says, hey, where are we going to dinner? But then he is, is mentally just eviscerated his partner, who is having a really hard time just jumping right back into the, the conversation. So again, object constancy 
is keeping that emotional connection, even if there's something that you find frustrating about another person because they're just doing their life the way that they're doing it. And this is where you need to step outside of your ego and have curiosity and try to understand why that person is showing up the way they are. Because honestly, if we want to skip right to the path of enlightenment and and I think I've said before, get your yoga mat and your ponytail and get teleported all the way to the top of the mountain, then every interaction in life gives us this amazing opportunity to truly self-confront and and grow. You know, why is this person's behavior a challenge for me? And what do I need to do now in order to grow from the experience? Maybe this is an opportunity for me to learn patience. Maybe I'm going to learn boundaries or emotional regulation. Maybe I'm going to learn empathy or when to trust my gut. But the bottom line is that those are all me-related issues. The other person is just being them. And so those are things for me to do, to think, to feel, to decide. So ultimately, if somebody is ticking you off or they're telling you how you are to think or what you're supposed to feel or what you're supposed to do, First of all, I do often say, well, it's adorable that they think that they know me better than myself. And, but then you do have that choice. So back to the concept of keeping this emotional connection with somebody, then you can truly take a look at what they're saying. And is there any truth there? And that's just an opportunity for you to self-confront and grow. And there may not be any truth there and might just be trying to push your buttons to get you to react. But here's the problem without seeing the full picture and keeping that emotional connection, people who are emotionally immature, or then again, who display these narcissistic traits or tendencies only view themselves and others in this black or white way, this uh, all or nothing. They're either high status, extraordinary, perfect, privileged, or low status where worthless or defective. And it's almost like they're, they're watching a TV, an old TV that can only switch between two channels. And this means that when they spot a flaw in somebody, then their entire perception changes. They go from holding somebody high on a pedestal to suddenly seeing them as nothing special. And it really is this tricky situation that reflects their emotional immaturity. So that can be really, really difficult. So that is the diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And then the truth about narcissistic personality disorder. Thank you, Eleanor Greenberg, in her article. So let's talk a little bit about emotional immaturity. So that does not have a specific set of diagnostic criteria like narcissism, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. But signs of emotional immaturity might include things like difficulty handling emotions or overreaction or suppression of emotions. Or next up is one of one of my favorites, the reluctance or inability to take responsibility for one's actions. And that's one that before I ever started down this uh, path of emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits and tendencies, it's always really been fascinating to sit in a therapist's office and watch a couple communicate with one another. And I still remember almost the first time that a spouse it was a wife and she expressed something that it was really hurtful. And I thought, here's a perfect time for the guy to apologize. And he just couldn't. And I was determined to let the the awkward silence just stay in the air until finally he did. And I realized at that moment, he just went flat. He went blank. And just we both sat there, the wife and I, and looking at the husband. And sure enough, it's as if he won because then we just sort of moved on. And I tried a couple of other times in one-on-one sessions to get that person to take ownership or accountability of his actions, and he could not do it. And now I understand that concept of confabulation where the person just, they're confabulating their narrative in real time. They're changing what the events were of what had happened because it certainly can't have happened the way that she's describing it, or that would mean that he did something wrong and he can't do anything wrong because let's go back in the time machine there to childhood and typically people that are emotionally immature or have these narcissistic traits and tendencies weren't modeled the the right way to 
take ownership or accountability of things in childhood. And so there was such a threat or a, a fear of punishment or abandonment to the little kid that when they thought they were in trouble, then the gaslighting was just this childhood defense mechanism. So it wasn't me. It was the dog. The dog ate my homework. I didn't do it. My brother did it. And just there, they become so good at just shutting down and then maintaining that they didn't do it. That then over time, with their implicit memory or what it feels like to be them, is that they couldn't have done it. And then the brain says, okay, well, I'll play along. So yeah, wasn't you, wasn't, you didn't do it. And then it just creates a narrative in real time. So that concept around gaslighting or somebody that really cannot take ownership or, or apologize for literally almost anything is you can just watch their brain just go into almost a, a panic mode and it cannot be that they did something wrong. Where to those that are more self-aware, it's liberating and it's very empowering to say, oh, my bad. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I didn't even mean to do that or I forgot to do that. And then the world still spins and you keep moving forward. After that is a struggle with commitment, avoiding responsibility or frequently changing their mind without justifiable reasons. And this is one that gets really interesting because I know that, that I've struggled with this one often, but the struggling with commitment or, or changing your mind that in the moment, the emotional immature person does really mean when they say, yeah, I can help you out this weekend because that feels good. I feel good. And the person that I'm interacting with, they look like they're pretty happy about that. But then as the day goes on or the week goes on or the weekend approaches, there might be something else that I want to do. And well, I, that feels good. I want to do that. So I'm sure the emotionally immature person says to themselves, I'm sure it's not really a big deal that the other person that I'm sure they'll be able to find somebody else that can help them. And it's not really a big deal. So I might not even let them know because they probably forgot about it anyway. So whatever we have to say to justify to ourselves that we are not being consistent or not, we're avoiding this responsibility or changing our mind and then just assuming that everybody else will just be fine with that, even though people are counting on us. So then over time, you become unreliable or with that inconsistency, but then act surprised on why people feel like they can't depend on you. A tendency to blame others for personal misfortunes or mistakes. Again, it goes back that it wasn't my fault. Difficulty with long-term planning or, or consideration for future consequences because to the emotionally immature, it truly is about the here and now and whatever feels good or will get me the validation or get out of the discomfort in the here and now. And that leads to the next concept around emotional immaturity, reliance on instant gratification rather than delaying pleasure for a greater reward. In the world of emotional immaturity, there is a lot of situations where it's, I will, I will take what is in front of me right now and not worry about the the future, which again, I can understand can be something that works for people in certain situations. There's also struggles with empathizing with others or understanding different perspectives. And again, that's because there can be this fear that if for some reason I don't understand their perspective, then they will abandon me. So I need to control the narrative and I need to let them know that their perspective isn't correct or let me tell them what my perspective is. And then once they hear that, then they'll agree and then they will still continue to love me. And then an overdependence on others for validation and, and emotional support. And that can become just emotionally exhausting on those in relationships with emotionally immature people, where you start to see this pattern of the anxious attachment with the, typically with the emotionally immature partner, and then an avoidant attachment pattern with the spouse or the partner of the emotionally immature partner. Because then that person just starts to, to get physically or emotionally overwhelmed and starts to just withdraw or pull back. And then if you look at just from a comparison standpoint, I think it's important to note that while there, there can be overlaps between behaviors exhibited by people with 
true narcissistic personality disorder and those who would just be considered emotionally immature, that they are truly not synonymous. And then again, narcissistic personality disorder is a specific diagnosable disorder and those patterns of behavior, they impact a lot of areas of an individual's life. And then emotional immaturity is this broader concept, which doesn't necessarily signify a a pathology, but it indicates these developmental areas in emotional regulation and in things like interpersonal effectiveness that are just maybe not completely developed. And that could even be, again, back to the someone not knowing what they don't know because that's the way that they were modeled and not every. Everybody who is emotionally immature has narcissistic personality disorder and then vice versa. And, and I think it's also worth noting that everybody can exhibit emotionally immature behaviors from time to time, but it, it truly does not mean that they have a personality disorder. So let's talk about the nature versus nurture debate in relation to narcissistic personality disorder and any personality disorder for that matter. The big debate then is around whether genetics, which would be nature, or the environmental factors, which is nurture, plays a larger role in the development of any personality disorder or emotional immaturity. And maybe surprise, the general belief is that it is a combination of both genetic and environmental factors or nature and nurture. And there's a, I put together a summary of some of the arguments for each side. So if you go with nature, so we're talking genetic or biological factors, one of the first things you can do is look at twin studies. So studies involving identical and fraternal twins have been looked at to determine the, the heritability of personality disorders. So in the case of narcissism, some twin studies suggest a, a moderate heritability. So it can be inherited. So, for instance, in a study published in the Journal of Personality Disorders, found that genetic factors accounted for approximately 24% of the variance in narcissistic behaviors. And then if you're just looking at brain structure and function, some research suggested individuals with narcissistic personality disorder um, might actually have differences in brain structure, and particularly in the areas related to empathy or emotional regulation, self-referential thinking. But it's really still unclear if these differences are a cause or a result of the disorder. Because I think the more we're learning about the brain, and this is coming from a non-neurologist being me, but I know that I've done a couple of episodes on complex post-traumatic stress disorder or CPTSD, where you find that somebody that has been in a long-term relationship with a narcissist or someone that's emotionally abusive or incredibly emotionally immature, and you find that that hippocampus or the area that is in charge of short-term memory actually shrinks over time and the amygdala grows. And so I think that if, again, this is a a non-scientist take, but if you're just looking at the brain as a survival mechanism, that over time it's starting to think in those scenarios, my my short-term memory is not really very necessary, but I need more blood flow into that fight or flight mechanism in the brain. And so if you are in one of these uh, relationships from the time you're a child, then is your brain just adapting? Are those the deeply rutted neuro pathways? So those areas for emotional regulation or empathy or those sort of things, are they getting a, a higher amount of blood flow or lower amount of blood flow because those areas are not called upon on a daily basis? Now, if we start looking at nurture, so environmental factors, childhood adversity. So a lot of researchers and clinicians believe that childhood experiences play a significant role in the development of narcissism or emotional immaturity. And that can include extremes on both ends of the parenting spectrum. So either excessive pampering or excessive criticism. So that's where you can really start to see that it really can. There are so many things that can come into play. Nature, nurture, or when I talk about birth order, abandonment, rejection, 
there's so much that can go into that or parental behavior. So studies have indicated that children of parents who are overprotective or too permissive might develop emotional immaturity or narcissistic tendencies and similarly inconsistent parental care or then even that excessive admiration or making the golden child or, or the scapegoat can contribute. And we'll talk about that in a minute too, or societal influences. So, so some argue that societal influences or societal factors such as the, the increasing emphasis on individualism or fame or attention in modern culture. So the concepts that we see so much in social media may contribute to more narcissistic behaviors or again, emotional immaturity or trauma. Experiences of trauma or abuse during childhood can lead to the development of various personality disorders, including narcissism. And some individuals might develop narcissistic traits or or tendencies or again, emotional immaturity as a defense mechanism against deep-seated feelings of inadequacy or vulnerability. And I think that before anybody then says, oh my gosh, if that was my situation as a kid, therefore I must be the narcissist. I want to start by saying if you are asking that question, I think we can check that box of not the narcissist, but that's where I like to say that we are all emotionally immature. And so being aware or starting down this path of growth or healing is, you know, you're moving from that I didn't know what I didn't know to now that I know and I'm starting to try to figure out what to do. So that consensus in the scientific community is that narcissistic personality disorder, like other psychological disorders, results from a complex interplay of genetic and environmental factors. So it's really unlikely that any personality disorder is exclusively the result of nature or nurture, but this combination of genetic predisposition and life experience, and those are the things that can shape the development and manifestation of disorders or emotional immaturity. And then the individual variations key. So two individuals exposed to similar environments can develop completely differently based on their genetic makeup. And then two individuals with similar genetic predisposition can develop differently based on their environmental experiences. And I think while I'm on this, just trying to operate from a basis of, hey, here's a, here's something to just go to if you're really starting to just wake up to narcissism in your relationship, your family, or in yourself – Let's talk a little bit about narcissistic family systems, because these are things that exhibit specific uh, dynamics that revolve around the needs, the, the desires, and the emotions of narcissistic parents or caregivers. And in this type of a family structure, then the well-being or the validation of the narcissistic member, so whether it's, it could be the father, the mother, it could be the grandfather, the grandmother, but those are placed above the needs and well-being of other family members. So if you look at characteristics of a narcissistic family system, then let's run down a few centered around the narcissist. So the family's main concern is maintaining the happiness, the, the ego and the wishes of, in this case, we'll say the narcissistic parent and typically at the expense of the other family members. And so an example might be at like family dinners. Everybody waits for the narcissistic father to choose where he'd like to sit, what he would like to eat first. And then all conversations revolve around his day, his achievements, his opinions. And if another family member tries to share their news or their views, then they're quickly overshadowed or dismissed. So over time, then it's just all around the control of that uh, narcissistic parent. Next, a characteristic of a narcissistic family system might be lack of boundaries. So the narcissistic parent might invade the personal lives of their children and just absolutely disregard their need for privacy 
and for autonomy. So an example here might be uh, maybe a narcissistic mom regularly going through her daughter's personal diary and belongings claiming, hey, this is my house and she has a right to know everything. And so even if the daughter protests, they're going to be ignored or even mocked. So over time, then it feels like why even try to, to set a boundary? And then you can see how those things can carry over into adulthood. Conditional love, affection and praise are often given conditionally based on how well children meet the demands or the expectations of the narcissistic parent. And one of the biggest challenges there is those goalposts can be moving often depending on the mood of the narcissist. So uh, thinking of an example of maybe in sports, you know, if a kid scores a goal in, in soccer, the narcissistic parent showers him with praise and gifts. You know, that's my boy. But when he performs poorly in the next game, all the affection or the attention are withdrawn and then he's coldly reminded of his failure. You know, how, how could you do that to the family or me or man, I never I never played like that when I was your age. And so just making it all about that parent manipulation and gaslighting. The narcissistic parent will manipulate situations or memories even to make themselves appear in a better light or to control family members. So now we're talking about gaslighting or making the family members doubt their perceptions or memories. And and that is such a common tactic out of a narcissistic family system. So just, I mean, a simple example of that is after an argument, maybe a heated argument, the narcissistic father denies ever saying anything hurtful even though the other family members heard him. And then he accuses them now of trying to make him look bad and now claims they're the ones twisting his words or remembering it wrong. And as a matter of fact, they need to apologize to him. So that gaslighting can just continually be something that makes the kid, and especially for a youth, to feel just absolutely crazy because that's their dad, that's their mom. Or another characteristic of a narcissistic family system, superficial appearances. So there might be an obsessive concern with how the family appears to outsiders. You know, what do we look like? And how's that reflect upon me as the parent? And so then problems or conflicts are hidden or denied. And then what is so interesting when you have a narcissistic family system and with thinking about these superficial appearances, those around the family are often aware that that's not, you know, they know that they're not perfect, but they know that it's also not anything that's going to be productive for for them to bring up to those parents that, hey, the we, we just saw your kid doing this thing. And so we know that that's not the case. And why can't you just be human like everybody else? So an example here might be the family struggling financially and, and emotionally behind closed doors. But then the narcissistic parent insists on buying a luxury car or going on a vacation and getting incredibly deep into debt or wearing designer clothes to ensure that the neighbors and the friends believe that, hey, everything is great here. We are we are doing fine, prosperous and happy. A couple more with the narcissistic family system. One is just that lack of emotional support because emotional needs of children or other family members are often ignored or minimized or ridiculed because This is all about when the narcissist or the narcissistic parent feels like providing love because they want to feel like a good parent. They do. But then if the kid needs validation or support, then not right now. It's not a good time or just get over it or, you know, don't you see how busy I am? Or, or maybe a daughter opens up about being bullied at school. I had this instance not, not too long ago, and instead of offering comfort or solutions, then the narcissistic parent says, well, you're probably overreacting, and you need to toughen up, or insinuates that, well, what did you do? You must have done something to deserve it, which then it doesn't take many of those interactions before then people are not going to even try to open up to their parents. 
And then the, maybe the, the last thing of a narcissistic family system is just conflict avoidance because direct confrontation or trying to address real issues will be avoided. And, and that's because the narcissist does not want to sit with discomfort because they do not want to be wrong or they can't be wrong. And that leads to passive aggressive behaviors or unspoken tension or a lot of unresolved conflicts. We just sweep things under the rug. We do not deal with things. They are not a big deal. And if somebody brings them up, then that is just something that is just unheard of. So, for example, if you have siblings that have a disagreement, but instead of addressing it openly, then they just tiptoe around the issue. And then the narcissistic parent insists that, hey, everybody needs to keep the peace in the house, even if it means suppressing feelings. And and it leads to this overall atmosphere of just tension and resentment. And that's where there's a lot of passive aggressive comments. So, so each of these examples just shows how the well-being and the validation of the narcissistic member take precedence over the needs and the well-being of the other family members. And that just creates this overall environment that is just a, it's a psychological minefield for those that are living within it. And then along with those, if you're looking at the narcissistic family system, then you've got this concept of the golden child versus the scapegoat. And so in most narcissistic families, there's a division of roles among the kids, and these roles help the narcissistic parent maintain their self-image and control over the family. And this is just, it's, it's heartbreaking. So if you look at the concept of a golden child, typically there's going to be one or possibly could be two identified, and this is a child who can do no wrong in the eyes of the narcissistic parent. So they often receive a disproportionate amount of praise and attention and resources, and their achievements are highlighted because that is proof of the narcissistic parent's superior parenting or genetics. This is all because of the narcissistic parent. And then the, the reality is that child might also start to develop narcissistic traits due to the, all the admiration and then the lack of accountability they experience because we're not going to hold the golden child accountable. So then on the other end, you've got the scapegoat. So this is the kid that's blamed for the family's problems, even if they're not at fault. And they will typically bear the brunt of the, the parent's anger or disappointment or frustration. And it's because they serve, the scapegoat serves as a diversion from the narcissistic parent's shortcomings or, or the family's issues. Because by focusing on the, the problematic child, then the narcissist can avoid self-reflection or any type of accountability. It's because the kid is bad. And then scapegoats then, no surprise, start to struggle with self-worth due to constant criticism and, and blame. And so they often then take on that role of that they, they are not enough or they will never be enough. And especially when they enter into new relationships. Now, why did there even need to be scapegoats and golden children in these narcissistic family systems? So one of the main things is control and validation, because by having both a golden child and a scapegoat, then the narcissistic parent can just manipulate the family dynamic at any time to their advantage because they can elevate themselves through the, the achievement of the golden child, but then they can deflect any blame or negativity onto the scapegoat. And then here's what's sad as well is, or it's a, a way that they can divide and conquer. So by assigning different roles to siblings, then the narcissistic parent can prevent them from uniting or supporting each other. And then that, what does that do? I mean, here we're looking at things like triangulation or it's ensuring that the narcissist remains the central figure in the family. Because their role is to be the person that people come to, rely on, seek for wisdom, guidance, or if to know that they're okay or if they're enough. And then, and then also self-image, the maintenance of self-image. So the golden child allows the narcissist to live vicariously reinforcing this, like the narcissist grandiose self-image. And then the scapegoat, on the other hand, serves as a, almost like this, uh, this, I want to say garbage bin or receptacle for negative feelings or perceived threats to the narcissist ego. And, and I will say that the roles can be fluid. Typically they settle in. 
But that's why I mentioned earlier, you can sometimes have one or two or one and a half golden children, and typically you're going to have a solid scapegoat. But those roles can be fluid at times. The, the child who was once the golden child might become the scapegoat if they start to challenge the narcissistic parent or they fail to meet their increasingly high expectations. But the long-term impacts, that's the stuff that is just so sad that, that they can be profound because they affect the self-worth or the relationship dynamics. And even more importantly, they affect the understanding of the scapegoat or, or the golden child's understanding of love and validation. And that is where you end up with a lot of the clients that I work with because they, they are starting to learn that the way that they were parented was not healthy. And so that is a lot to work through, but it can be worked through. So if you feel like you were that scapegoater, even if you start to recognize, man, I, I kind of was maybe the golden child, then it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to look to a therapist who specializes in, in that area of personality disorders. So I think we'll wrap it up there, but hopefully this gives you a little bit of a primer of narcissism versus emotional immaturity, the concept of narcissistic family systems, and what that looks like in a family, the the scapegoat, the golden child. And I think that as you start to do more of an exploration into these episodes of Waking Up to Narcissism, then I, I hope you will feel free to share your stories to me. Contact at TonyOverbay.com. Uh, sign up to for the newsletter. I would love it if you're listening to this as one of the free episodes to go subscribe to the premium episodes and you're going to get a lot more of the question and answers and you are welcome to send me emails uh, with questions and I will try to get to those and answer those on this premium edition. But um, hey, I see you. I, if you are listening to this at all, then especially if you made it to the end, then that means that you're somebody that is interested in in growth and you are wanting to do all that you can do to improve yourself or your family situation. And so you're you're on a path and you're where you need to be. And it is going to be a process and that's okay because there's so much to be said for starting to just wake up to your own experiences and know that it's okay to have your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own emotions. But un unfortunately, for a little bit, if you are in a relationship with somebody that is emotionally immature or has these narcissistic traits and tendencies, as you start to wake up, and maybe this is a time to just quickly run through, have these five rules of, in essence, interacting with or, or navigating a relationship with a narcissist or someone who is emotionally immature, and that is to raise your emotional baseline, which is go find those episodes. It's a concept that I've developed around self-care. Self-care is not selfish. And typically the pathologically kind person that finds themselves in the relationship with the emotionally immature or narcissistic person, then they have been incredibly altruistic and they've given of their, their selves in order to manage the the emotions of the family or to buffer from the narcissistic parent. And so it is absolutely okay for you to engage in self-care because you need to be in the best position you can be to, to take on the journey that you're about to take on. So raise that emotional baseline. The second thing that I like to say is get your PhD in gaslighting because that becomes so important to recognize you are not crazy. Your thoughts and feelings and emotions are absolutely valid, even if somebody else is telling you that that is not what happened. Because ultimately, we want to get to that point where you, you know the things that you know, and you know when things do happen and your feelings are absolutely valid. And then that leads to number three, get out of unproductive conversations because they are the things that are going to cause you to feel crazier and crazier and eventually lead to a, a good old amygdala hijack. And before you know it, then you're just reacting instead of responding. And then that leads to the fourth thing, which is learn to set healthy boundaries. And then 
for better or worse, know that then as you start to set those boundaries, then know that the boundary is a challenge to the narcissist or to the emotionally immature. And so as you start to set the boundaries, it's not like everyone is going to get excited and applaud for your, your newfound awareness and growth, but they are going to actually push more buttons in order to try to get you back into the role that you have played in the family. But that leads to the fifth and final thing, which is very important is to recognize that that you will never cause the narcissist or the emotionally immature person to have that aha moment or the epiphany, that that is going to have to come from them. And the more that you are trying to give them the aha moment or the epiphany, in reality, you are showing them your playbook on the things that are important to you. And so that can be really hard as the kind, pathological kind person, but just know that that is part of that process of awakening and becoming. And so as you put those things in place, then you'll start to feel a little bit more sanity in that relationship and have a better idea of how you want to navigate that moving forward. So thanks again for taking the time to be here. And I will see you next time on Waking Up to Narcissism, either the free or the premium question and answer edition. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.